Welcome to the second episode of the new podcast, Digital Humanities in East Asia. I'm Amanda Schumann, and with me today are Maggie Green and Alan Christie again. In today's episode, what we were thinking about talking about and what we'd like to talk about in detail is not just this anti-digital humanities piece, as I'm calling it, that came out in the LA Review of Books recently, but also sort of responses to it. So what I wanted to say first were a few words about the original piece uh, and some of the responses and the criticisms, and then just move right into the main thing we'd like to talk about, which is how both the criticisms and some of the uh, in the original piece and then some of the responses to those are applied perhaps within digital humanities in East Asia. And from there, we can we can go in any direction that we want to. First, what I wanted to say um, was just a few words about this piece for those perhaps who read it a while ago or did not get a chance to read it. So this is a piece that came out in the online edition of the LA Review of Books on May 1st. And the authors of it, I think all three of them are in literary studies. Okay, so one's in Great Britain, one's in uh, Canada, and one's in the United States at UVA. So I think the general attitude of the piece is sort of reflected in the initial sort of um, lead-in to their larger, lengthier argument, which is several thousand words. But the very first line of the piece that I'll just read out here for our listeners is, Advocates position digital humanities as a corrective to the quote-unquote traditional and, and outmoded approaches to literary study that supposedly plague English departments. So right off the bat, you know, um, if you're not in literary studies or English departments, you, you have to pause uh, for a second and think, okay, perhaps this doesn't apply at all to, you know, digital humanities projects or digital humanities outside of English departments. Because I think it's rather presumptuous that they claim that up front. The other thing I wanted to say just before we move into into the sort of the responses and criticisms were up front, the biggest claim that the piece is making basically is that digital humanities is, at least this is how I read it, is related to a so-called, what is the exact phrase, neoliberal takeover of the university? Yeah, n- y- yes. 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 Yeah, neoliberal Come takeover. On, Amanda, you can pull out some kind of uh, uh, 1950s-style uh, <laughs> Chinese communist language for this. It is the it is the cutting edge of the of a uh, some kind of comprador attack, counterattack. Yeah, it's the vanguard of the counter-revolutionaries. Vanguard, thank you. Let's make let's make this thing speak to East Asianists, right? In a, in the language that we know. Right, exactly. Um, so, you know, my first sort of impressions on reading it were, okay, okay, so they're talking about English departments, but, you know, they're not really. I mean, the rest of the piece is also sort of trying to make broad claims about digital humanities coming from their perspective, which happens to be in, in literary studies and English departments. At least that's how I read it. You know, also what I wanted to point out was I think that the reason that this was published at the time it was published, is related to the sort of broader series that the LA Review of Books has right now, in which they're interviewing several people that they've identified as working in the digital humanities. Um, many of these people are quite positive about the digital humanities, and they're talking at length. And also, at least I think the f- the first several, most of those interviews are with people who are also in literary studies. All of them until the most recent one, and she's an archivist. Right. Okay. So there you go. So, so there's sort of a presumption, I think, in the original series that in, in who their choices for those interviews um, so far, uh, there's a particular sort of idea of what digital humanities is or isn't and who fits that profile. So what I think is very interesting about some of the claims in here, and let me just, let me just say uh, what a few of them are. They say things like digital humanities see technological innovation as, quote unquote, an end in of it uh, in itself my favorite i well we can talk about this later but my favorite sort of big claim that they make is that the institutional they say and this is a direct quote institutional success has for the most part involved the displacement of politically progressive humanities scholarship and activism in favor of the manufacture of digital tools and archives so they go on about that for a bit And then they say, what digital humanities is not about, despite its explicit claims, is the use of digital or quantitative methodologies to answer research questions and in the humanities. And my favorite line here is that it's about project-based learning and lab-based research over reading and writing. And it's in it's caught up with some kind of rebranding of Alt AC, uh, sorry, rebranding of insecure campus employment as empowering Alt AC career choices. 
And basically they make this whole claim that comes up several times in this piece that what's happened is that it's basically technical support and tech technical expertise. Digital humanities is trying to claim it as a form of humanistic or humanist knowledge. They make another broad claim about it being tied into Silicon Valley and technology more broadly. And then that's how they sort of try to tie it into why the university is interested in it and, you know, this kind of thing. Uh, I mean, they basically reduce it to technical support and job skills training at certain points, which is very frustrating for me. Uh, the biggest criticisms so far about this piece, and there's many people who've written about it, most of the people who've written criticisms about it are also literary people in literary studies, although there have been some interesting ones by librarians, which are very good too. But the biggest criticism seems to be that it's narrow. It references, for example, UVA too much, um, makes straw man arguments to support its main thesis about corporatist restructuring. I, I do like a few things about this piece, both in terms of some of the criticisms, and we'll talk about that in a second. But the other thing I like is that the fact that it has provoked so many good responses. I think that oftentimes, and I think this is a fair criticism that the this piece and several others have made is that sometimes in the digital humanities, um, people sort of tout digital humanities as being very positive or progressive without trying to actually take a sort of closer look at what you're doing in your project in terms of how it applies to sort of, you know, for example, your initial research questions or how it could apply to the larger field as a whole. So I do think that's a that's an interesting thing to think about. But the responses themselves, because they come from a range of people of different backgrounds, I think that they, they highlight different things. And yet at the same time, we can find some sort of overlap with some of the things we see in digital uh, humanities in East Asia. Okay, so let's move right into it. First of all, I wanted to ask both of you uh, about what you thought about the piece that you read if you want to just say a few words about it or anything that I've said so far. I guess the first thing I would say is, you know, I, I have to admit to rolling my eyes anytime these critiques of the, quote, neoliberal university come up, not because I think it's not true, but because I distinctly remember as a first-year grad student reading Miyoshi Masao's wonderful article, which was published in 2000, uh, called The Ivory Tower in Escrow, which, you know, addresses a lot of these things. It's 16 years old. Um, and so I think a lot of the criticisms that were raised in the original um, LA Review of Books article, you know, th these are not things at all confined to the digital humanities. Um, and, I, you know, I wonder, do these people not read Masao Miyoshi because he's a Japanese lit scholar? I, I don't know. Um, but it's, it's a little amazing to me that we're still having these conversations and acting like these criticisms are somehow new or confined to, you know, one specific area. So I think in this case, my first reaction was singling out digital humanities in this is a bit ridiculous. Yeah, somebody in one of the uh, responses had a wonderful line about how in the political history that these folks have, somehow miraculously humanities has kept their virginity through all these years of neoliberal change going on in the academy, at least in their, in their telling until digital humanities arrived on the scene. You know, like you, uh, Maggie, with the uh, reference to the Masami Yoshi piece, there was also the piece some years ago now, God, who knows, uh, I, I should go look it up, but when... Um, Bruce Cummings wrote about uh, in in the old bulletin of consolidation scholars about the history of the CIA and funding for area studies, and then you had all those responses from people, right? So this notion that you know the academy has somehow been had this um, era in which it was free from those kinds of pressures uh, and that it did its work in, in a progressive fashion is, uh, yeah, you know, pretty laughable. Yeah, I mean, my, my original take of it, too, was basically that, you know, digital humanities is becoming, for some reason or another, it's suddenly become the scapegoat for so many other problems. You know, you mentioned that that article, Alan, I, I wonder if it's related to the piece in Harry Heratunian's edited volume on the afterlives of area studies. Right, learning places. Uh, I was I was thinking that those pieces there are related to the Cummings, yes. Right. Okay. So, um, and I remember reading that, of course, with you in graduate school and thinking the same thing. Look how, look how, you know, everything that has ever been done, at least as far as East Asian studies is concerned, you, of course, we could apply that more broadly, that everything that has ever been funded was funded under a certain sort of political agenda. There's always a sort of agenda behind it, you know, with digital humanities, you know, to scapegoat it like that makes no sense at all, because these are coming from people who probably have fought to get funding 
in so many other ways before. And that, you know, they are sort of, um, I think one of the critiques had a very good line where they said, you know, it, it's sort of ironic that this is coming from, in this case, tenured professors who are sort of complicit in the system anyways. So um, to have them come at it like this is to totally ignore uh, their own positions. Right. And, you know, there, there's a, a kind of perception bias going on here, which is really sadly, you know, undermines the article because we have these assertions that uh, digital humanities is now dominating the funding scene. We don't have any data about that. I would love to see, you know, how much is uh, the Office of Digital Humanities at NEH funded and how much are they funding compared to some of the other offices, right? How much money is actually going into, into DH these days from what kinds of places? We have no data on this. So, and so you can well imagine that these folks here are in whatever institutions they're in, they're seeing this stuff coming up in lots of places. They're feeling their own frustrations about the difficulty of, of funding their own projects. And now suddenly this perception bias, which is un, which they haven't tried to found in any kind of actual statistical uh, research, you know, suddenly rears its ugly head to them and says, wow, all the, you know, all the money's going to people in digital humanities when it's, it's just their perception. I mean, it could be true, but they, they give us no way to actually believe that. Meanwhile, those of us in the digital humanities who are struggling to fund our stuff, you know, by doing things like bakeathons and all, <laughs> you know, are looking at them and saying, you know, well, I wish some of that money was coming my way. It's most likely going to the places, you know, that all money goes, which is the people who already have the money. We could talk about unnamed institutions in the United States that you know, continue to draw lots of money. And now they're drawing them to the digital things, right? I'm sorry, Maggie. Oh, no, no, I was just going to say, I mean, some of this does just seem to be reflective of like the current, you know, funding climate. And I I can say, yes, it absolutely sucks to, you know, ask, ask for a pittance handout or something from your university and not get anything. But, you know, we're all fighting for a little tiny piece of the pie. It's not like digital humanities projects are necessarily raking in, you know, massive Massive amounts of, of money while nobody else is is getting anything. I think you know we're all fighting for what is seriously reduced funding, and I think that is perhaps some of the nostalgia for uh, the Cold War era, right? Because whatever one wants to say about that, you know, the CIA was a little better about funding language training than many universities are these days, and and that sort of thing. Yeah, when I got to that part of the article where they're claiming how digital humanities projects are better funded. I do wonder if there are well, a few things. One, I really couldn't take the rest of the article seriously after I got to that because I just found it laughable. Having worked at the Center for History and New Media, in addition to um, working on smaller projects, both at universities like, you know, like with you, Alan, but also on my own, just doing my own sort of projects, which are completely unfunded and free, um, you know, free labor from me. I just shook my head. Because, I mean, even at a place like that was sort of, you know, institutionalized to a certain extent, like Center for History and New Media, the center itself was, at the time I was there at least, was, from what I understood, very large, it was affiliated with the university, but the funding, you know, the center we worked in was separate from, uh, in fact, we were in a trailer for a few years, that's a long story, but anyways, um, it was completely, the, the funding was completely separate, so we had our own sort of sources of funding that had nothing to do and didn't interfere at all with the way the university was spending money. So I had no, one, once I read that in the article, I just, I, I found the rest of it, you know, not worth reading. Cause I thought, you know, if you're, if you're just going to make broad claims like that about funding, then it's just, it's not worth reading. Um, we went through three deans here, the small number of us trying to raise money to have some kind of modest infrastructure so that digital humanities projects could happen. We went through three deans asking for decanal support before we got a dean who was willing to do it, actually put the money down, right? So the first couple deans were like, well, you know, sort of in that that line that is attributed to Franklin Delano Roosevelt, you know, make me do it. There was a sort of sense that, you know, I, yeah, I guess this is a good idea, but I'm not going to... I'm not going to build it until, you know, you have enough a critical mass of people in your departments who are demanding it. And when that happens, then I'll go ahead and give you some money. And of course, from our side, you can't convince a lot of these faculty to do it when it actually doing a digital humanities project has to rely on a ton of free labor that you, you know, beg and plead for from other places so that you can demonstrate that this thing is interesting enough to go ahead and fund. Right. So we were put into this trap. How do you how do you get other people to want to do this? 
you know, to, to visualize their projects as having perhaps a dimension, not the entire thing, right, but just, just a dimension that could happen in this realm when you can't actually get the work done. They were making the claim that, you know, administrators are pushing this on departments. And, you know, I was thinking, uh, no, you know, not in my case anyway. Uh, I don't mean to say anything bad about it. We, we were going through tough times. You know, lots of people are asking them for money. and But no, there was no push from the administration to do this at all. Let's move into maybe just certain points brought up in this article or in any of the responses that you all read relate to, you know, specifically digital humanities projects that we know of in East Asian studies, either projects or just a general sense of what's happening right now in the field. So, for example, you know, one of the things I noticed with both the LA Review of Books interview series, as well as this particular piece and some of the responses to it, is that there seems to be an obsession with pinning down a definition of digital humanities. And I'm not really quite sure why, especially to me, it kind of seems ridiculous because so many people in academia, at least in humanities, do not like to come up with a clear definition. We're familiar in, in of course, you know, dealing with uh, East Asian history. When we have one of these students, you know, write a paper, Alan, about colonialism or revolution, you know, we just love those papers that start out with, you know, dictionary.com or Merriam-Webster's, exactly, of, uh, you know, Merriam-Webster's definition of revolution is X, Y, and Z. And we always write, no, that's not the point. The point is to think about what that means and what it is. And so why is it that they're so obsessed with pinning down a definition of, of digital humanities? Well, don't you think some of that, though, is because for people that don't have familiarity with digital humanities projects, often they come in with a very specific idea about what it means. I mean, I I think I've mentioned, um, I run into this quite a lot where, you know, DH projects mean things like um, working with GIS and the letters project, you know, the, the, the thing on late 18th century intellectual connections, and maybe digitizing stuff. And that's about it. Like for people that don't do DH, at least in, in many historians that I've met, they themselves have a pretty limited idea of, of what it can mean and, and what sorts of projects can fall under that. So it it's almost like I think in some cases attempting to pin down a definition is trying to make it a little broader than some people think it is. I could be wrong, but that's kind of been my impression, at least in some cases. There are a number of the responses that I was seeing, like Ted Underwood's response, Steve Varner's response, both of them were saying, I'm sick of defining this field. It was reminding me of a couple of years ago that a lot of the stuff I was reading was people trying to define digital humanities <laughs> and finding out that, you know, lots of people disagreed with their with their definitions, right? So some of the, the older long-tooth people in the field were responding to this article in LARB with a kind of weariness, please don't make me define digital humanities again. Instead, I will respond to something else. But I think Maggie's right. There is often from other people who haven't been reading things in digital humanities, haven't been looking at projects and thinking of them specifically in terms of digital humanities, this this question, what what is this besides something that resides on a computer? How is, how is putting this on a computer you know, anything more than simply putting it on a computer? What's the difference between what I do and don't put on a computer and what you do and do put on a computer, right? And, and there's a, a fair amount of skepticism, I think, about whether or not the computational stuff adds anything of a significant difference to what the human being working, you know, alone can do. For example, I think for me, one of the, the key paragraphs in the uh, the piece was actually the second paragraph, when they start with the, the sentence, neoliberal policies and institutions value academic work that produces findings immediately usable by industry and that produces graduates trained for the current requirements of the commercial workplace. The humanities are, in their traditional form, less amenable to such restructuring than other disciplines, relying on painstaking individual scholarship and producing forms of knowledge with less immediate economic application. By providing a model for humanities teaching and research that appears to overcome these perceived limitations, digital humanities has played a leading role in the corporatist restructuring of the humanities. In that paragraph, you see them. their vision of the humanities uh, is one in which uh, research relies on painstaking individual scholarship, producing forms of knowledge with less immediate economic application, right? So the big horror that I see in my, from my literature colleagues when, when they respond with horror is, you know, this notion that computers will do our reading for us, 
where's the human being and all you've automated this stuff right and a computer can't possibly interpret as a human being could interpret i find in history you get far less of that existential horror in response to the notion that computers will be used in your stuff right but i think there's an existential horror that takes hold in some colleagues in literature when they when they see this stuff franco moretti you know is the devil which is so weird because I, f- I feel like, d- well, distant reading has so many applicate. Like, you know, I actually first came across distant reading, the Moretti book, with uh, colleagues in game studies. So not even, I mean, people that are in many cases um, working much more in the the sciency end of things and computer science and the like. But you know, I've always thought distant reading is interesting, not in and of itself, but how it can be combined with that quote painstaking, you know, individual research. It's it's a different take on the literary canon. It's not replacing individual reading or whatever, but it's it's offering different perspectives that you can't get from just looking at a, a single text or a set of texts, right? Right. It's, a, it's allowing you to perceive things that you might not have seen in there be- in the larger corpus before, which allows you to then go back to do what we were all trained to do, which is the close reading. I mean, the thing that was so puzzling in this piece for, for most of us is this notion that that close reading act, the interpretation, never happens in digital humanities. And as you're saying, Maggie, what's happening with distant reading is you're reading large corpuses of work so that you can perceive patterns that's, that are just really hard to do. Who has the time to read thousands of books? Nobody. And then maybe in the close reading, you discover that the patterns that the distant reading suggested to you were there turn out not to be significant. Then people move on, right? But it's just about finding new ways to pry open what's going on in that big archive that we're working with and ask new questions. That's all it is. No, I mean, I think that's a really, I think that's a really good way of putting it there at the end, particularly um, in thinking about, you know, DH in, in, in history projects more more broadly. And I do think it is related to, you know, why people seem to be somewhat dismissive of DH or, or, or have some skepticism about it is that they don't understand that it's actually, it's not just purely, you know, digitization or that it's purely technical support, that it is an act just like, for example, going into, um, you know, a historical archive and figuring out how you're going to make sense or order the kinds of things you're coming across or approach them, that the the close reading is not lost. That's also part of it. But that the technical, for example, the technical skills you might bring to it allow you to approach the items differently or interpret them in perhaps ways you didn't immediately see. I think that that's the part that's hard to get across. It's the idea that the way in which they have been you know, perhaps practicing history for decades now, it's not, uh, it's not opposing that method. Right. There's one other place in this piece where they, they signal another kind of complaint with digital humanities, but that I think is in similar character. And that's this notion that what happens in digital humanities is that people build tools or they build archives. And particularly with the archives, but I suppose also with the tools, their complaint is that there's sort of a, you know, I made this and then I I refuse to myself partake in the activity of interpretation, right? So I made an archive so somebody else can do that work. I'm not doing that work. This is, I think, one of the ways that they characterize archive making in in the digital humanities. And this is actually one of the places where I think, as East Asianists, this is a really important idea because we've talked about this before, especially Maggie, who is not just an East Asianist, but who is in the remote wilderness of Montana. And that is the question of access, right? What do archives do? It provides access to for people to do the work, right? That's huge. I think one thing that um, was sort of, I, I found a bit ironic in this piece. So I'm involved in a project called Beyond Citation, which is looking at digital databases of all sorts and varieties. And it was awarded an NEH grant, not a particularly huge one, but it, it got a digital startup grant from the NEH. And they're actively involved in interrogating, okay, what what does it mean that we have these digital repositories, how are things selected for them? And they're trying to get under the hood of the archive through, you know, the the use of of digital tools. Because whether we like it or not, you know, digital stuff has completely changed the way in which most of us do research, right? Mm -hmm. Um, And I, the people that I see thinking critically about that are themselves people who are, 
interested in or involved in digital humanities. Um, you know, my colleagues that are scared of computers are not necessarily sitting and, and thinking about, well, how has JSTOR, you know, changed the way we do research or whatever. So in many cases, um, I think people who are working with tools, developing tools, developing archives, digital archives are actively you know, asking, okay, you know, what does this mean and, and how is this curated and, and what sort of effects does that have on scholarship? You know, I don't see anti-digital tool people necessarily doing that. You know, it's really interesting that you brought that up, actually, because like, you know, this is one of my big sort of uh, beefs, I would say right now with particularly working in Chinese history, is that we don't have enough of what you just said going on. So, you know, I mean, I can name a bunch of databases that, you know, uh, that are, for example, run by the Chinese government. I can also think of some that are not run by the Chinese government, but that are, um, you know, repositories of digitized materials, etc. And I don't think that there there's enough interrogation. Who's putting those materials online? And making them accessible to us, and then how we're how the ways in which we're using them is actually affecting our ability to write about certain issues, or you know the types of materials we're using are actually sort of affecting the type of scholarship that's possible. And I mean, this what's amazing to me about this in particular is that you know for decades people have interrogated traditional archives or traditional repositories, but there seems to be very few people who are sort of looking at the creation online of you know, what does it mean the fact that People's Daily is now available online? And every now and then we hear something come up about, you know, the Chinese government decided to shut part of it down or remove certain articles or et cetera, et cetera. And I'm sure the same thing happens with China Max, which is like, you know, the big one for Chinese books in the field. Well, I have the, so CAJ, the China Academic Journals database, which has a lot of stuff from post-49, you know, periodicals and things. You know, I'm lucky to own paper copies of a lot of the most important journals I use. Um, so I can actually sit there and go through the list and see what is listed and what's available on CAJ versus what's in the actual original paper copies. And there's, you know, there's weird deletions and things that I, you know, I'm like, why, why, why wouldn't they post this article? I mean, who knows? Maybe it's nothing nefarious, but you know, that kind of issue is it, it, on the one hand, it opens up a lot of opportunities for finding things that would be really hard to do if one was forced to sit and look at nothing but microfilm but it raises questions about okay what are we what are we missing and sort of trusting that this is a complete archive when in fact it's you know very often not and often not in obvious ways i guess like my big thing is is just the fact that i mean this is sort of a generalization so i see a lot more people using sources that they've gotten online like i said without necessarily discussing the sort of parameters within which they got that. And this includes people, by the way, who use sort of information that they've just found online through forums or blog posts or Chinese newspapers online, this kind of thing. And it's probably not just true in the China field. I'm sure it's true, broadly speaking. I do think it would be a valid criticism to to say right now that people are, they tend to be, especially in PRC history with the way the political climate is going right now and how it's become very difficult sometimes to get materials that people are sometimes, they're grasping for straws and getting what they can and writing about it. People who might use online materials are not stepping back and saying, you know, uh, well, because the political climate has gotten more difficult over the last few years, we really need to look at the fact that what was available in 2010 online is not available online anymore or is not available in a repository anymore. So, yeah, I mean, like I totally I, I totally agree with you. What's what's amazing to me is that there's a disconnect. Like people you people still do that with paper sources, with traditional archives and paper sources. So, you know, we get reports from archives where people come back and say certain material wasn't available or they, or, you know, it goes beyond that. So they talk about the ways in which the material is organized. And that does not seem to happen yet with the digital. I, I, I haven't seen anyone sort of, um, you know, really sort of reflect on on that or think about how their practices have changed. So... It'd be interesting. It would be interesting to see particularly somebody who I, I can't say this is true necessarily for myself because I wrote my dissertation as you did, as as Maggie did at a time when we were constantly using digital resources and repositories. But it would be interesting to see if anyone has reflected on the research that they're doing now or a project that they're doing now and comparing it with what they did, say, 15 years ago or 20 years ago, even. 
So in other words, people who did a major dissertation type of project and see and actually reflect on the ways that, that they conducted their research and the types of sources and whatnot and interrogated those sources and compare it with what they're doing now. I think there would be actually more differences than people than people think about, you know. Other things, uh, you know, that you wanted that I wanted to talk about when I was reading, you know, the responses and thinking about actually thinking about what you said earlier, Alan, about the individual working on a project. It made me think a lot about what digital humanities and perhaps digital humanities in East Asia in particular needs or or relies on. And that is sort of collaboration online or in the digital to actually communicate with other people and to work across what are sometimes really, in our case, for example, doing this podcast, huge geographical distances. You obviously have linguistic differences, and we've talked about that briefly before, but you also have these huge geographic distances. And what struck me when I was reading the, the initial piece and the responses was two things. First of all, a lot of digital humanities scholarship is still working in sort of Anglo-centric or Eurocentric uh, parameters, which is not necessarily perhaps that different from, you know, other sorts of humanities scholarship, but, uh, or the broader sort of, you know, field of history even um, within, within humanities. But what struck me was that these people are speaking primarily about particularly the North, the North American, and perhaps, you know, we can extend that to the UK academies. And within that, they're not just talking about literary studies, but they're also talking about people who, in the case of the UVA, for example, who all work together within close proximity. So it's not just about language, but it's also about people who are working side by side. And Bethany Nowitzki's interview uh, in the LA Review of Books also reminded me of this because she was talking about how digital humanities at uh, UVA, she felt the Scholars Lab, I believe it's a Scholars Lab where she works, is so successful in part because of the ability for graduate students to sit in a lab and work with one another. And she came out of that program. And it made me think of how I actually can't think, I don't know if either of you can, but I can't think of a setting, perhaps maybe like UC San Diego or Harvard, where you would be able to put enough skilled people in East Asian history even together in some sort of lab to work together on digital projects. I couldn't think of a setting in which this would be possible. Well, it would have to happen on the East Coast. I I know in the area of Japanese studies that there are these uh, regional Japan seminars I got to give uh, attend one at uh, Yale a few years ago and saw that on this weekend people came in from Harvard and Princeton and you know, Pennsylvania and all kinds of places, big universities and small colleges and whatnot. And I was impressed and I admit a little jealous at the ability of folks on the East Coast to be able to pull people together regularly. But it's really that critical mass, the number of people that can come together. Now that's not the same as what you're talking about, uh, Amanda, with a, a lab where people can sit with each other regularly and, and be East Asian scholars working on DH together. That's that's yet another order of things. But it does have a lot to do with uh, geography at times. And again, this is the kind of thing that probably Maggie feels more acutely than, than uh, you or I do, Amanda. I mean, you're over there in Europe, but Leiden is a nice, concentrated location. I mean, Leiden has been great for that. But you know, sometimes I wonder, and I don't know how you, either of you feel about this, but do we need to have people together like that? You know, having people meet regularly or having people work closely together requires sort of face-to-face interaction. I don't know whether or not, you know, you feel the same way about this, but my feeling is the sort of utopian potential of digital humanities is that we don't have to have that. I mean, I'm talking to both of you on the other side of the world. The fact that we don't necessarily have to be, you know, together on all this, and yet at the same time, reflecting on the sort of most successful projects and many of the projects that we're going to talk about or have talked about in this podcast, the Gale project being one of them, the one I'm going to in Freiburg, the Maoist Legacy Project, this is how the projects are still run. Projects that are in Leiden or they're in Freiburg or they're in UCSC and they're not, I can't think right now of a lot of teams and projects, at least in the East Asia field, that are working across geographic boundaries. I think some of that, though, is just, I mean, at least in the United States, well, in, in Europe, too. I mean, like we were saying, there there are places where there are 
our larger concentrations of East Asianists, right? So the Northeast, um, California, you know, I mean, thinking about collaboration, I mean, Amanda and I, of course, met at one of the all UC modern Chinese history conferences, right, where we just brought together a whole bunch of grad students from UCs and, and uh, you know, USC and, and Stanford and stuff. So, you know, I, I think part of that has to do with funding as well. It tends to be, I mean, at least in Montana, it's easier to get funding for or through some kind of center. But to have a center, you have to have a concentration of people, right? Um, We have centers for all sorts of things at MSU. We do not have a center for Asian studies because there's like five of us, six of us. We're not enough to to have a center. We're a bit too all over the place in terms of what we all do. So we we can't even have sort of a common theme. Mm. But the funding is really interesting. I mean, I think I've talked to Alan about this before. Um, But the funding issue is actually, I think, a big problem in digital humanities particularly if you're dealing with East Asia. And that's because there are so many projects that have the potential to collaborate across geographic boundaries. So you have people who are working in Japan or in China, and you have people working in Germany, and you have people working in the Netherlands, and you have people working in the United States. But, you know, finding, how do you find a funding source that's, or or multiple funding sources that are actually going to allow you to have this sort of group of people who work together and actually make sure they all get paid? Oh, yeah, no, I, well, and apart from that um, international collaboration makes paying people difficult, uh, it also makes you uh, often illegible to the funding organizations who, you know, they get in all these grants and then they parse them out to areas. So this is a grant that comes in for an Asian studies person, right? This is the kind of thing that you're probably facing right now, Amanda, with your Asia, with your China, Africa stuff. But I, I know that I have lost out on, on grants because I was doing a collaborative U.S.-Japan history thing. And they didn't know whether to put us in U.S. history or Japan and whichever field that, you know, or Asia and whichever group they put us in saw us as insufficiently working on their mandate. Right. So a U.S. Japan comparative World War II memory project submitted to a U.S. history grant reviewing group looks at that and says, well, there's too much Japan here. You know, and and more particularly, the Asia group looks at it and is like, well, there's a lot of U.S. here. I think a U.S. historian is trying to sneak something by us, and we need to save save that money for us in, in East Asia. So you know, we don't get the grant because we're illegible. So those those kinds of collaborations uh, are difficult, both because how do you pay people in these different places? Believe me, the University of California does not want to do that. That kind of thing gives everybody a headache and makes people look at me with glaring eyes. But also the funders often, because their models are to think in terms of, you know, area studies, don't know what to do with a big collaborative project or even a project that might be strictly speaking in a field, but looks like it has people from coming from too many different places. Well, and I mean, of course, something like what you just uh, outlined about U.S.-Japan project, you know, if you go to another country, their sort of, you know, paradigms and boundaries are completely different sometimes as well. So trying to get, you know, a different agency in another country to fund something that is then supposed to also include people in other countries could also be radically, you have to frame it completely differently. I often feel like working in in East Asian projects poses this sort of the problems, uh, you know, with these sorts of boundaries that are still so nation centered, which is, of course, not just a problem in digital humanities, but I feel like it's more pronounced when you're actually trying to get uh, funding of any sort, particularly funding from some of these big agencies, some of which are mentioned in the LA Review of Books piece or in the in the subsequent responses. So something like NEH is a perfect example of a big funding agency that I think once you're funded through there, I have no idea, you know, for example, once you get the funding, how do you pay people elsewhere? I don't know. But also NEH itself, and this is a big criticism that came out in not just these, but I've, I've heard this criticism in previous responses in prior years as well, that NEH tends to, uh, this is the criticism regarding tools and archives. So NEH funds very specific things. And actually, I thought it was really interesting that I think it was Adeline Coe's piece. Uh, Adeline Coe wrote a piece that was um, not anti-digital humanities, but she brings up in there that part of the problem is you know, the types of project that NEH is, is, is funding. But I think she's the one who said afterwards, what we need to do is she said we need to lobby NEH. 
you know, that what we need to do is we need to spend more time actually trying to change the ways in which they're they're funding these projects by actually telling them. And I can say from past experience as well, I think, Alan, when you and I were doing some of the NEH stuff years ago, that they did, the NEH has an Office of Digital Humanities, and that I felt that they were actually quite responsive. When you told them and you actually sat with them and spoke to them about your, your project, that they actually seemed to be very interested in what people wanted to do. They weren't necessarily looking for... Uh, more of the same. Correct. Yeah, no, digital humanities has actually been more responsive to that kind of broad geographical comparative thing that we're trying to do at times. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that's a very positive thing. Uh, and especially if you're looking at, at DH in East Asia, I don't necessarily think that they would be, you know, dismissive of an idea that you had if you brought it up with them and, and were curious to know. I mean, I think they'd be open to discussing it. The other thing I wanted to briefly discuss and, uh, towards the end of the LA Review of Books piece and was discussed by in a few of the responses, but actually not as many responses as I was hoping, is that of diversity issues. Uh, gender issues are the ones that were brought up in the initial piece, but, you know, some of the responses talked about sort of uh, race and ethnicity as well. Basically, the, the piece is talking about how not enough has been done in digital humanities projects to include women. That's pretty much what the original piece is talking about. So I wanted to think about this in terms of digital digital projects in East Asia that we've been a part of or that you know of and your impressions there. The reason I want to talk about this or say something about this is because I actually don't feel that way necessarily about the projects that I'm aware of in digital humanities in East Asia. So the projects I'm aware of actually tend to be more, include more women. Some of them are run by women. They also tend to include people who, in a lot of cases, are working in East Asia in some capacity or are East Asian. So how did both of you read that piece and and what have your impressions been? Well, I mean, I think if we're thinking about digital humanities and East Asian studies, I mean, just thinking back to the conference panel we did at AAS a couple of years ago, I think the, the women outnumbered the men on that, didn't they, Alan? Um, Amanda, I, I'm pretty sure. Um, so I, I've never felt that it's it's more dominated by white men than any other area of the academy, right? I think this kind of goes back to some of the scapegoating issues. Yes, there are too many white men in the academy. We we know this. But I do feel like there's, uh, there's a fair number of, you know, relatively prominent women working and, and being very strong um, advocates for their digital humanities projects. I mean, I'm thinking of like Hilde's project and stuff. And, and like you say, a certain, certainly in the case of ethnicity, there are, at least from my impression, uh, there's a lot more diversity than is being given credit for. Like, I'm just thinking about the digital synology group, which is, you know, a pretty, I would say, diverse mix of genders and ethnicities and areas that people are, are living and working in. So yeah, I, I don't know. It seems, if anything, sort of less overwhelmingly white male than a lot of other areas in in the humanities that I've come across. Acknowledging that numbers alone do not mean that uh, there is no gender problem. Uh, Here at UCSC, we have a digital humanities uh, research cluster, and two of the three conveners are women. Our Clear Fellow, who uh, is now our digital humanities uh, director in the library, she's been hired full-time now, is a woman. We had a recent workshop uh, on campus with Tara McPherson and Craig uh, Dietrich. Tara talked to us, gave us an alternative history of digital humanities that had a, you know, an origin in feminist scholarship. So, you know, the numbers alone don't say much about this, but at the workshop that Craig ran, uh, there were probably close to 30 people in the room, and I was one of four men, and everyone else was a woman. So, but acknowledging that numbers alone do not mean that there's no gender problem, the numbers of women participating in the groups here at UCSC are very large. And yeah, the panel, as I recall, it had three women and two men at the, at the Asian Studies Conference. So, But the gender problem also has to be about whether or not we're asking questions that interrogate gender and, you know, do we, do we have uh, good critiques, methodologies, approaches that engage with the critiques of, of feminism as we're doing our work in East Asian Studies. And I tend to think that we're doing pretty well on that, and there's always room to do better of course. But then as you say, the ethnicity question, of course, 
I can think of something like Japan's 2011 Disasters Archive. This is a wonderful example, not just of, you know, white folks at Harvard and, you know, Asian folks in Japan collaborating together, but, you know, when you look at the teams on both sides of the Pacific and putting together that digital archive, it's it's a pretty nicely diverse group of people on both sides of the Pacific. Yo Kawano was, uh, you know, was involved in that from UCLA, who's been also centrally involved with Todd Pressner's uh, HyperCities uh, project. We're not perfect on the on the uh, question of uh, ethnic diversity within digital humanities in the broader sense, you know, because this is the society we live in. But I do think uh, that we're doing relatively well and with lots of room to do much better. But it does remind me of something that I would have followed up on, uh, Amanda, with what you were, when we were talking earlier about the again that phrase about painstaking individual scholarship. You know, this is this is a long-standing problem in our field. The fetish for the individually written monograph turns out to be, at this point, incredibly destructive to careers and to knowledge making. You just have to open up any individually written monograph and go to the acknowledgments, where you know you can see the writer, you know, often very sincerely with deep feeling, acknowledging the people who have helped them make this book. And it's true that the person whose name is, is listed on the book is usually the author who wrote all the sentences. But if you've written one of these books, you know how many people have rewritten your sentences. You know how many people gave you sentences that you didn't really know that you needed to have. You know how many people changed your your concept of what you were doing along the way, or who enriched the concept of what you're doing along the way, or who gave you access to the stuff that you didn't know you needed to have access to, or who are curating the stuff so that you can have access to it rather than it being tossed into a bin somewhere or locked away behind something else. And how many of us who have done that stuff have been able to do that because we have a partner who picks up the kids or who makes dinner or who carries the burden of the family longer so that you can sit there in your isolated room and do... I mean, there's just no individual scholarship in the world. And of course, the fetish for the individual scholarship is... uh, The price paid for that fetish is paid, as we know overwhelmingly by female faculty, by faculty of color uh, as well. So it's just a profoundly destructive notion that they have in there. And I've always felt that one of the things, I think one of the political imperatives that I see in digital humanities is the imperative to acknowledge all of your collaborators. They have to get the acknowledgement as well. And that, I just want to add that that was most, I think, uh, one of the most trenchant critiques uh, of the original piece was that several people in their responses noted exactly what you said, which is digital humanities has that wonderful ability where up front it notes the collaborative efforts that go into one of these projects. So, um, and perhaps that's one of the things that people who do this individual scholarship tend to fear or ignore. Right. And you you have this, you know, pearl clutching moment in the piece where they say, for God's sakes, at some point, we're, we're going to start talking about the people in IT departments doing humanities, IT departments or Google. Well, I work with people in IT departments who are doing humanities, you know, and uh, I, this is one of those moments when you sort of want to rise up and, you know, stand up for your colleagues and say, you know, they are doing humanities and they're doing it damn well, even though they're not tenured faculty. But I think also in Asian studies, you know, I'm, I'm older than the two of you, but I'm not old enough to have been in the thick of the ugliest part of this kind of stuff. But from my advisors, I was I learned stories about what Asian studies looked like in the 50s and 60s and the early 70s. And there was a pretty ugly undercurrent of disdain for our colleagues in East Asia. I heard stories of people hiring faculty who were Asian themselves and their other colleagues sort of rolling their eyes that, you know, a female Japanese a scholar had been hired for this position at a particular American land-grant institution. I will not name the story any further than that. The person who was telling me the story, of course, was, you know, telling me the story because uh, he was saying there was a really ugly undercurrent of disdain for our colleagues across the sea. And I think one of the, the ways that that disdain runs under the surface is the notion that, you know, in Japan or China, which is, you know, the two dominants, but we could talk about this for Korea, et cetera, et cetera, right, any of those places, the scholarship that they do, because you know, it has an audience that is going to be really committed to the small local details, seems to be very good at doing the small local detail thing. But those of us who come from outside, who work in the English language, and by virtue of writing in the English language, have greater access to a broader global audience, they do the small things and we do the big things, right? We, we take their small cases about what's, in, what's going on in Japan or China, and then we make it relevant on the bigger international stage. And that's a really ugly undercurrent. I don't think it's quite as prominent these days as it was once upon a time, but it was there. 
digital humanities allows us an opportunity to really put that stuff to rest, to put that kind of attitude in the place that it belongs, which is the dustbin of history. Um, and it's one of the reasons that when I teach the, the first graduate class readings in, in Japanese history here, I call it the foundational readings, and it's this series of readings in which we, we look at texts that, that I think were sort of big agenda-setting texts from the 30s through the 90s, right? And I try to make sure that my students see that at times the agenda for you know global Japanese studies was being set by our Japanese colleagues on a you know on a global scale. Someone like Maeda Ai's book on a text in the city had such a profound impact on everybody at Chicago. People often think of uh, Japanese studies at Chicago as having come because these folks are reading either uh, you know German hermeneutics or they're reading continental philosophy from Foucault and Derrida and whatnot. You know, it was coming actually from eye to eye had just a profound impact on these folks. So, you know, when I think about what it means to be doing this scholarship, what it means to be able to have access to collaborating with our colleagues in Japan or China so well, it's a great opportunity for us to all to recognize uh, that the scholarship that's being done in Asia is profoundly good and it's often profoundly bad in the way that it's profoundly bad here, right? I mean, it's just, it's the same thing. But there is, because we operate in the English language and we have this privileged access to broader global circulations of knowledge, there is this pernicious thing, I think, that at least the potential for a pernicious hierarchy produced. Well, I think, um, I know Stefan Tanaka wrote an essay on, I think on the Hakone Conference and sort of the closing off of certain possibilities of analysis of Japanese history because, you know, it was the old white American dude saying, no, we're not going to do that, um, and really sort of shutting down uh, a lot of the stuff that was, go you know, in, in terms of the direction the field was going, stuff that was going on in Japan. That might be in the Afterlife Literary Studies book, I can't remember, but I, I do remember he wrote an essay on that. So I think you're absolutely right, Alan, there, there is a danger, but also sort of interesting possibilities for how digital humanities can get us out of that. So, you know, this gets back to that collaborative question and, and access and all that stuff. It's great to be in the same room with, with everybody. I think one of the things about being in the room with everybody is the uh, possibilities for serendipity. Rachel Deblinger, who will one day go down in, in the history of the field as one of the great heroes, she's our digital scholarship uh, director here at UCSC, talks about being at UCLA and sitting in the same lab with other people who are doing projects that are really different from hers, but sort of peeking over at their screen and discovering, you know, or they're peeking at her screen and discovering, oh, you're taking an approach like that. I hadn't thought, right, that I could do that too. So serendipity is one of those things that people are looking for when you're sitting in the room together. But otherwise, uh, we can collaborate far better than we ever could before. All right. Well, that's all for today. Thank you, Maggie. And thank you, Alan, for joining me again in this in this podcast. And for everyone out there listening, we have a website at www.dheastasia.org in which we're posting relevant information related to the podcast, such as websites and various other things that we talked about during today's episode. So thank you both. Thank you, Amanda. And uh, thank you, everyone out there, for listening. We hope you tune in next time.